Hi, I'm Patrick Polk, but this is not the rules of investing. In this special podcast mini-series, we're taking a deep dive into the uranium market, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. In the second of these three short episodes, I speak to Lee Kerya, CEO of NextGen Energy. NextGen Energy is currently developing the Arrow Deposit, located in the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan in northern Canada. Arrow is one of the largest, highest grade, undeveloped uranium resources in the world. NextGen has been listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange for several years, but recently gained another listing on the ASX under ticker code NXG. In this podcast, we discuss potential future increases in demand for uranium, why NextGen saw an ASX listing, and he provides some valuable insights on the Rook One project and the Arrow deposit. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out on a slightly unusual topic, electric vehicles. It's something that I know you've spoken about in some of your presentations before. What is the significance of electric vehicles for nuclear energy? Well, the electric vehicles are, are displacing petrol or gas, gasoline-powered powered vehicles and diesel-powered vehicles. And Tesla, for example, make 500,000 vehicles a year alone. And we now see BMW and Toyota and all the major car manufacturers uh, making electric vehicles. In fact, uh, Mercedes uh, have recently come out and said that all of their cars by 2030 will be electric. So it, it what is what is happening with electric vehicles is actually every time a new one goes onto the road, it's placing more pressure onto the electrical grid. Now, Electric vehicles don't generate clean energy, they consume energy, and they're really a conduit of, of, of energy. To address decarbonisation and a cleaner environment, cleaner atmosphere, you actually got to go back to the source of what was the power that generated that electricity into the vehicle. And, and obviously nuclear is, is proven to be the cleanest form of energy that uh, exists on the planet. So. Electrical vehicles are great. They are putting a lot of additional pressure onto an existing electrical grid, which is still predominantly powered by fossil burning sources. You mentioned there that nuclear was the cleanest energy source available. That's probably not what a lot of people think. Could you explain why you think it's cleaner than solar and wind, for example? Good question and, and uh, apologies and thank you for allowing me to clarify that. It's the cleanest form of base load power. Wind, solar, all of that, yes, very, very clean energy producing 
forms, but they don't provide, currently don't provide base load power. A lot of development, a lot of advancement still is in, in the pipeline before you could really rely on solar and wind as uh, base load power sources uh, of clean energy. Nuclear and hydro produce a very carbon clean output of, of energy and it's base load power. And then you've got gas, not as clean as nuclear and hydro or wind and solar, but still has a has a uh, ability to provide base load power. So, you know, around the world, it's really a, a mix. Most developed countries have a mix of energy sources where they're doing both renewables, but also uh, still heavily relying on fossil fuels, which is causing the carbon emissions. So, uh, yeah, thank you for allowing me to clarify that. No worries. There's been a lot of speculation recently about the amount of skilled labour available to work on projects in Canada. What do you think is the availability of talent in the mining industry out there at the moment? Like, hypothetically, if you were, were ready to start an existing mine up now, do you think you'd be able to get the talent? Yeah, we we do. And along every stage of our development, we've, we've been in corporate since 2011, so over 10 years now, and we've gone through rapid growth and, and uh, have been managing that uh, extremely well. The next phases of our, our project, yeah, we, we are very confident that we will be able to attract the right skilled labour. And I think that's a function of a couple of things. The project itself, very exciting project, but also the environment at NextGen uh, with respect to people who come into our organisation. We are a, a, a real teaching and development organisation as well. And we've got lots of cases where uh, people have come in at a certain level and elevated through the ranks to more senior levels uh, as time's gone on. So across all major uh, and material aspects of the organisation, we have in-house expertise and experience, and we've had no trouble attracting the right calibre of expertise and experience into those roles, and we expect that to continue. Once in production, Obviously, we're going to have a far larger workforce and we have a, a wonderful community, 155Ks from the, from the project uh, that has been servicing the project for over 10 years. And uh, one of the aspects of our mind is that over 50% of jobs will be on-the-job training. So it's a great aspect of... Uh, the development and the production at Arrow is that we'll be doing a lot of on-the-job training with respect to training the staff. And there is a big pool of committed people in the local community that are uh, very, very uh, enthusiastic about the future with NextGen. The US Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, recently made some comments supportive of building new nuclear capacity in the United States, which is something that ha hasn't happened for a very long time. Similar noises have been coming out of Europe as well. How significant would a shift like that be for long-term uranium prices? Yeah, probably the most significant uh, on the demand side of things. And with Biden winning the election, uh, he came in, he immediately recommitted to the Paris Agreement back in November. That was a, a large aspect. And then the climate policy. 
and their policy is for their carbon uh, for their electrical grid to be carbon neutral by 2035 and the energy secretary has come out and said that relies heavily on nuclear and what we've already seen is those nuclear reactors in the US that were scheduled to close during this decade are now going through relicensing and will stay open duke energy uh, we've also seen Exelon in Illinois just very recently. Illinois as a state actually has gotten ahead of the federal incentives and support for nuclear that is coming um, to really shore it up themselves and, and haven't waited for the federal subsidies. But that is enormous. And, and the US is still the world's largest producer of nuclear power domestically. They consume about 50 million pounds a year, but they only produce 1 million pounds of, of uranium. But they are still the world's largest consumer or producer of nuclear energy, and they will be going into the 2030th decade. Even though we're seeing phenomenal growth rates of nuclear in other parts of the world, such as the Middle East and uh, and Asia and India, the US is still the largest by by uh, quite a, a long margin. So I think that's very, very positive. Going over to Europe, earlier on in the year, the European Union's uh, science arm officially designated uh, nuclear energy was uh, clean, green, and safe compared to current fossil burning carbon emitting sources. And that is slated to go before their parliament before the end of this calendar year and for inclusion into the uh, taxonomy. And if that was to occur, well, the pool of funds uh, investing into the nuclear space will multiply by, well, I don't even know, but a, a massive multiple. There are two things that are, one's currently on the uh, in play, the other one's on the horizon. Probably the two biggest demand scenarios that I've, I've uh, seen in my 20 years in the sector. And uh, recently I was actually reading a news poll in, in Australia over the weekend. The question was, would you support a domestic nuclear industry based on the small modular reactors? And 82% were in favour. Now, I would have said five years ago, it would have been 82% against. But I think that's really the importance of climate change and clean air energy is probably the most, the, the number one topic once this pandemic's behind us. And, and I think people are really subscribing to the science as opposed to some old ideology that uh, was in place with respect to nuclear energy. Of course, the other big unknown on the demand side of the equation has, for quite a while now, has been Japan. For, I don't know, five or six years now, I think, we've been talking about, the, you know, restarting the reactors in Japan. However, the reality of the restarts has been a lot slower than I think anybody expected. What kind of timeline do you expect to see for Japan's restart of its, you know, remaining, I think there's about 22 or 23 operable but disused reactors? Yeah, so it has been slower than anyone expected. There's eight currently in operation, and you're quite right. I, I think another 24 are operable but currently not in operation. News, I think it was only about two or three weeks ago, that both sides of the Japanese parliament have said we've got to get these nuclear reactors up and running just for an energy need, let alone clean air energy need. And uh, they're a 100% uh, importer of energy 
fuel uh, into their country. And so it, I think it's very positive for nuclear and, and both sides of the Japanese parliament are in favour and, and supportive of it. And I think you might see that start to accelerate. In terms of what's that going to do? Well, I don't see them, even though they haven't since 2011, put any type of material volume into the market. I think that potential fear that some market speculators may have had, I think they can be pretty confident that you're not going to see any material supply of uh, uranium onto the onto the spot market given these these developments and their pressing need for for energy are these kind of additional reactors the restarts the life extensions are they required for the uranium bull thesis to play out no uh, and that's a very good question nuclear energy without any of these restarts or new reactors uh, that are slated to, to come online has still resulted since 2011 to 2019. In 2019, that was a new record for the amount of nuclear power generation for a given calendar year. So it, I, my answer is no. We uh, Nuclear uh, demand is pretty well understood and, and certain and certainly not going down in the pandemic. Well, Nuclear power really proved just how valuable it was, even in a pandemic. And so uh, there's a lot of confidence and certainty behind the nuclear demand, Kurt. And uh, a lot of these things that have happened recently, like uh, the demand curve had those reactors in the US closing down over this decade. They now need to be inserted back into the demand. And we are now at a world record uh, historically for nuclear power generation. So it uh, the outlook is, is is very very strong. What do you think is the incentive price that's required in order to restart idled production? I'm not talking about you know greenfields projects such as your own, but you know the the the, the big projects that have been sitting in care and maintenance for the past few years, like Langer Heinrich, like uh, like Macarthur River Mine, even even the projects at Peninsula and Boss, for example. You know they've all got infrastructure and, and mines that are ready to go, almost a turnkey-ready solution. Yeah. What is the incentive price required to get those kinds of projects back online? Yeah, well, it's it, it's a it's a real key question and it's one that's hotly debated and uh, there's a number of prices that people have, have uh, suggested. You know, personally, what we've, we've looked at, and I, I think we have a very good understanding of it, uh, having been in the industry so long and, and knowing the nature of the various projects out there, um, they all have a place. There's no doubt about it at, at, at some price. Um, I think for your listeners, uh, looking at what was the uranium price that was realised for those particular projects when they did come offline, probably gives you a good indication as to what is required for those to turn back on, Paladin was uh, early in the in the the 2010 decade. Macarthur River, I think it was 2016 that they first talked about. They, I think they went on a care and maintenance for a six month or a ten month period, and then 2017 was when they started initiating permanent care and maintenance. Now, to turn those one those projects back on, you're going to need a price. Um, which is probably higher than what the realised price was back when they turned it off, given the rising costs and also 
you know, read a, returning these things on requires still a, a lot more capex than what it otherwise would have needed that hadn't have gone into care and maintenance. And and I think, yeah, it's not easy re-employing the size of workforce that you need uh, for these types of projects. And, and if you do, you're kind of like locking in for at least a five-year period. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get no one to come and work for you. So I, I think with that and also the increase in uh, environmental regulation of mining operations, it's going to increase that price. It's, it's, it's a lot. I, I comfortably say that or conservatively say I think the incentive price to turn on that idled production is probably uh, materially higher than, than what the, the realised price was when they did make the decision to close them down. You know, there's a, a you, you mentioned Boss. They've got a, a wonderful uh, project down in South Australia where, and I actually worked on that. My first entry into uranium was was on the honeymoon project, so I'm very familiar with it. And there's been a lot of great work done by uh, Boss and the, and the team, Duncan Crabb uh, and his technical team, led by Bryn Jones, down in South Australia. And they've got a fully permitted mine in a really great location, uh, my home state, in fact, and. Um, could get into production probably the fastest out of all of those those projects you mentioned, and they'll produce two and a half to three million pounds. Yeah, profitable enterprise given the amount of capex that they need. Two to three million pounds though is not going to solve the demand and supply gap or even replace production which is coming offline. And a lot of people talk about well, uh, Arrow thirty million pounds that that's a huge chunk. Well, if we did it today, first of all, we'd do it responsibly, but it would be a big chunk. But Arrow's still got a development profile and, and timeline before it does get into production. And our £30 million per annum is going to be less than what production is coming offline between now and when we go into production. So Arrow is only going to replace production which is coming offline between now and, and then. And we're still going to have a massive gap growing in terms of the demand and, and the balance of supply. So there's, there's, as I mentioned before, the opportunities for all the development companies in the uranium space, we all offer something different, size, grade, location, technical risk, profile, that type of thing. And that approaching uh, demand and supply gap, which really becomes evident in 2024-25, uh, there's not enough arrows, there's not enough bosses, uh, there's not enough fissions or denizens out there um, or paladins out there to fill that that gap that's coming. Well, uh, people may not realise, as you just alluded to, to South Australia being your home state, that you're actually currently in, uh, in Canada. NextGen has had uh, quite successful listings in North America what motivated you to want to seek another listing in Australia? Yeah, well, it, it had purely to do with the investment appetite that uh, we'd been receiving from the Australian market. Look, we, we, we started in Australia. So at one stage, from day one, we had 100% uh, Australian shareholders. But uh, that was when we were private. We listed on the TSX in in. April of 2013, and and our uh, Toronto and and uh, North American shareholder base expanded very very quickly. But we'd always had a lot of interest from Australia, given 
my background and and familiarity with the the investors down there that were familiar with uranium and and so um, uh, with the success of next gen and and everything and the, and also I'd say the development profile the ASX really do like a project that has a defined resource engineering study and has exposure to the commodity as it's going through the development phase and into cash flow. And so I think the timing for us was right as well, given our stage of development. And the Australian market really does uh, subscribe to the fundamentals of, of uranium. And the larger superannuation funds, a large percentage of them can only invest on in companies that are ASX listed. And so, you know, the liquidity, it will, it's light at the moment, but it will continue to build. And that's a similar experience when we listed on the NYSE. We didn't do a capital raising yet within a six-month period. Uh, our daily volume on the NYSE was representing about 30 to 35% of our total volume. So it's coming. We certainly see that uh, the Australian market is, a, is an excellent source of uh, knowledge, the knowledgeable investors in terms of our next stage of development. And uh, we have a $1.3 billion capex, that's Canadian dollars, which is basically on parity with the Australian dollar, give or take 10% on, on, at any particular day. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's a likely source. The other aspect is uh, Lee Cushing in Hong Kong, Australasia region, also a 20% shareholder of NextGen. Um, you know, it, it's a very familiar story down there, even though we hadn't been listed down there for for those reasons I outlined. You mentioned there the CapEx, which is a convenient segue, because I actually wanted to ask you about that. I mean, it is a big figure, $1.3 billion. It's it's certainly at the upper end of, of the projects in the industry. What are your plans or expectations for how you might raise that capital when the time comes? Yeah, it's, it's a $1.3 billion capex. At today's spot price, its payback period is 11 months. So even though it it, it does have a billion-dollar price tag on it, it the payback period is phenomenally quick in less than a year. And that's for a uh, on a feasibility study that's based on just under 11 years. But everyone knows we're permitting for a 24-year mine life because we've got additional resources that aren't in that in the measured and indicated category just yet. So given the payback and the phenomenal economics, which is like about a 90% after-tax profit margin, we have fantastic financing flexibility. So we'll be able to, you know, it can sustain a large percentage of debt. We also have $200 million in the bank as we speak. Um, we have an investment in a in a company of ours, which uh, which is currently valued at about two hundred and fifty million, and and so I think we've got tremendous flexibility and a real good head start on that financing package. And I I used to work on the other side of the fence financing these types of things, and so I know it meets a lot of the requirements for traditional mining finance, but it also uh, I would say to listeners out there, there's also a very strong likelihood we'll probably go down a non-traditional mining finance route as we, we did with CEF back in 2016 and 17, which worked out phenomenally well, which was really designed uh, with respect to understanding the uniqueness of the asset and our development path. And I, 
And this is a highly unique asset, highly unique opportunity. And so we'll, we'll, we won't be doing something that's kind of vanilla. It'll be very fit for purpose given the profile of the asset. In your opinion, what are the most important attributes for prospective uranium investors to consider about next-gen energy? It's, we are developing the world's largest highest-grade deposit as we speak. We have a highly dedicated team which exhibit experience right through all facets of the mining life cycle from exploration right through to uh, reclamation, uh, closure and reclamation. We have demonstrated at every stage of our incorporations from 2011 right through today, there's no company in the sector that has deployed a more efficient use of capital. The ratio of exploration development spend relative to overhead leads the sector by a very long margin. We have you know, very high discipline around capital allocation. And so whilst we have which everyone recognises the world's best asset, we've taken upon ourselves to actually judge ourselves on how do we actually optimise that. And we're constantly coming into the office every day on how do we optimise, how do we optimise. And that's the dedication that you get with investing in next gen. And so it's not just about the asset, it's about the way we go about it. And I can tell you it's, it's an absolute privilege to lead such a, a dedicated, uh, committed team with respect. We know we've got something special. We know our efforts are going to affect a lot of people we probably won't even meet in our lives. And I think, you know, you can be the best accountant, lawyer or, or geologist or many of the disciplines that we have at NextGen, but you've got an opportunity at NextGen to also positively affect people and a lot of people that you won't even most likely meet, you know, I think that's a very special opportunity and, and requires people to take it very seriously. Well, that's it for now. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate you taking the time to share your, your wisdom about both the uranium industry and about NextGen. That's been my absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for more uranium-related content. Next up is Guy Keller, Portfolio Manager of the Tribeca Nuclear Opportunities Fund. If you enjoyed this special, please be sure to leave us a like or a comment.